0: My advice to parents around asking questions is to work on framing questions where your child cannot give you a one-word response, right? If you say, how was your day? And they say, fine, they've checked the box, they've answered your question, they've engaged with you, and it's very easy, clean, neat, and they don't have to feel vulnerable. Instead, ask more specific questions. So, you know, instead of how was your day, talk to me about one awesome thing that happened today. And they may go, I don't know. You can then frame it and say, well, I'll start then. And you model for them the expectations that you have around the conversation. And not expectations in terms of this is what you should do, but rather our our kids hate hypocrisy. They want to know that what we ask of them, we ourselves are doing.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are excited to educate, motivate, and inspire you to change the way you perceive health and discover your art of living well. Get ready to feel inspired.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Art of Living Well podcast. I just want to say that we're so grateful for all of you, our listeners, and we feel so lucky to be able to have all of these enlightening, thought-provoking, and inspirational conversations with our guest each week. Thank you for supporting us on this very fun and rewarding journey. And before we get started today, we wanted to make sure you know about our next quarterly liver detox, which will kick off on Sunday, September 19th. Sign-up information and more details can be found by clicking the link in the show notes or on our website. You can also find more information on Facebook and in our Instagram bio. We are so excited to introduce today's guest, Meredith Esalot. Meredith is a K-8 school principal in San Francisco, California, and the author of The Overly Honest Teacher, Parenting Advice from the Classroom which was released in October of 2020. With a career in academia that has spanned more than 17 years, Meredith started off in collegiate student activities before moving into both elementary and secondary academic communities. She spent nine years in middle school education as both teacher and dean of middle school curriculum. In each of these opportunities, she witnessed the gamut of the scholastic, social, and developmental experiences of today's student. Meredith's book, The Overly Honest Teacher, is a narrative that's nonfiction, and it's really written from the perspective of an educator speaking to the modern-day parent community. Its premise is really quite simple, tools and tips, anecdotes and advice from one side of the desk to the other. In our conversation with Meredith, we talk about instilling self-confidence in females at a young age. We talk about how certain conversations with teens and te- tweens can be challenging and ways that you can get certain conversations started. We dive into the overbearing parent and um, she offers so many great tips that can be used immediately um, by parents to implement into their own lives. We love the witty, honest, and wise advice that Meredith offers to our listeners, and we're so excited for you to listen to this conversation today. But first, a quick word from our new sponsor, The Healthy Place, an online and brick and mortar supplement store based in Wisconsin. We know how overwhelming and confusing shopping for vitamins and supplements can be, and many people start taking supplements without understanding what their body needs. It is so important to ensure that the supplements you're taking are high quality, free of common allergens, GMOs, and third-party tested, so you know that what you are putting in your body is actually what it states on the bottle. We recently sat down and chatted with the founder of The Healthy Place, Tim O'Brien, whose mission as a company is to impact, empower, and educate every customer to learn, grow, and create a lifelong foundation of health and wellness. Both Tim and his wife and co-owner, Becky, strive to inspire their customers to make healthy changes that will impact every area of their life. And we couldn't agree more with their values.
1: One of the things that sets the healthy place apart from the other places that you can buy supplements from is their team of wellness consultants who are ready to help you find the highest quality product. They won't just find you a product for what you believe you may need, They ask questions to understand the underlying condition that you're trying to address, and they really guide and educate you on your journey to find wellness. And now they have an online chat feature that duplicates the level of service that you get from their in-person store, allowing you to receive personalized service from the comfort of your home. Some common ailments they love helping customers address include chronic pain, stress, anxiety, sleep issues, and even energy and immunity. We were so impressed with their genuine desire to help educate and motivate their customers to get to the root of their issue and address it in a very holistic way. Another benefit we love about findyourhealthyplace.com is that they carry many different vetted brands so that you are not stuck with one brand or product to try. So head on over to findyourhealthyplace.com and chat with an online wellness consultant. You can use code LIVINGWELL for 30% off the full price of your supplement purchase.
2: Hi, Meredith. We are so excited that we connected with you a few weeks ago and we're really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So everyone has a story and we'd love to hear your journey on how you came to be a teacher and then a school principal and an author of the book, The Overly Honest Teacher, which really delves into parenting advice from the classroom. Yeah, I, I tell people
0: that my mom always said I should be a teacher. And early on, when I was in college, I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to move, move to New York and kind of pursue that Carrie Bradshaw, New York City life, if you will. And um when I was graduating from college, exactly, right? <laughs> the wardrobe included, I needed all of it. Um <laughs> <laughs> so when I graduated from college, an opportunity opened up for me to stay on campus and work in uh, student activities as the um, interim director of student life. And when I got into that, I really started to work with students in terms of leadership development. And at the time, there was a lot of like career coaching that was going on with it and planning these large-scale campus events to get students drawn into community. And that led into another job on campus, which got me more into fundraising at the academic level. And when my time at the college campus had kind of come to a close, my former alma mater, my former high school, was looking for a director of alumni relations and um, development. And so my, my time in development and fundraising moved into that arena. And I had talked to my boss at the time about, you know, I think I might get my teaching credentials so I can know what differentiates us when I go to meet with donors. And the second that I started in the program, I just fell in love with the idea of impacting kids and being a teacher and being in the classroom. And so my journey then went from academic fundraising to true academics. I taught seventh grade and middle school language arts for close to 10 years. Um, and I mean, it was true in the trenches. When you're working with middle schoolers day in and day out, there is never a dull moment. Um, <laughs> and in 2014, my husband had the opportunity to uh, take us to Dallas for his job, and so we left the Bay Area, and I took a hiatus from teaching, and which I had never done before. I was just, it was constant in the classroom, constant working. And when I had that moment to really see the forest through the trees, I started to jot down notes and ideas, reflections on lessons that landed well and ones that I would never do again. And then I really started to think about my relationships with parents and the kind of overarching chasm that has grown in communication between teachers and parents. You know, we're all working towards the same goals. And yet so often, we find there's this disconnect in how we relate to one another and find common ground. And as I was writing down these thoughts and ideas, they just started to build out into chapters. Um, and, and the overly honest teacher from there was born back in 2014. I was also going to graduate school at the time in educational leadership. And when we Decided to move back to the Bay Area in 2016. I joined a school here in the San, in San Francisco in the Mission District, and uh, started as principal. And as a principal, I mean, it was like it's, it, today. It's still like drinking out of a fire hose, just a constant barrage, twenty four seven, which I love. But the overly honest teacher had to be shelved. I just didn't have the time to pursue it. But Lo and behold, um, one connection to another put me in touch with the publisher, and um, this past October twenty twenty, um, my book came to life, and so it's been a full circle journey.
2: Congratulations! I know that's a a big undertaking. Definitely, I had no
0: idea the nuances of the whole publishing process, um, which you know harkens back to my days in college when that was really what I wanted to do. So it was a it was a good tie to that.
2: That's awesome.
1: Well, I love that you've combined your desire to be a writer and you know be live the Carrie Bradshaw life, if you will, in New York, with becoming a teacher and then becoming a principal. I mean, you've you've got all those boxes covered, right? And San
2: Francisco is wow. a pretty cool so, city too.
1: <laughs> oh, it is
0: exactly. <laughs> it is. As is Dallas. I, I've loved everywhere that I've lived. I, I feel very fortunate in that way.
2: Nice.
1: Yeah. So when we talked um, a few weeks ago, Meredith, you mentioned that, you know, the importance of instilling self-confidence in females at a young age, and especially those middle school years are just yeah. so tricky, right? What are your observations and suggestions for parents on how, how we can do this? I know, you know, Marnie has two girls and I have a middle schooler and she's, so we're we're very much in the thick of it, and I know that our listeners, uh, many of them are too.
0: Absolutely, our, you know our students are, they're bombarded from all sides now. You know, I I was in a period of disordered eating in my own life, and so I understand the insecurities and the the fears around body image and and how the world perceives our outward selves. And so I've always approached working with my students coming from that place of empathy because. I've walked in their shoes. I know what it's like, even to this day, to still feel those pangs of insecurity. Um, I didn't grow up, though, under the microscope of social media. And I feel like this narrative is definitely playing out. So many of us are talking about it. You know, the, the blessings and the curses that come from having our lives just out there on a public digital forum 24-7, um, which oftentimes only shows the good. I know that there's starting to be this pendulum swing where we're trying to show balance, you know, like, hey, I'm having an off day. But for the youngest individuals in the room who are finding their self-worth and they're finding their value from an audience, most of whom they have no idea who these people even are, how they're choosing who influences them, who they're deciding to make as their ideals, it's scary. It's scary. I'm going to say as an educator, as a human, it, it really frightens me because, um, you know, my students are these... Boys and girls. I don't, I don't necessarily, I think that we want to remove a portion of the gender from it because I have had boys who are my students struggle just as much with how they feel about themselves as, as our girls. But I think we have to, one, parents and teachers alike, help our students develop realistic expectations, help them understand that their worth and their value comes from their talents, their abilities, their intellect, their um prowess to be a good friend, a good listener, um how they are a supportive community member and I think the more that individuals parents and guardians and and teachers can build in those opportunities for students to thrive and shine in ways outside of the physicality um the more that we can really start to build a foundation of rooted grounded confidence in in the realistic in the real and the tangible and the things that are going to get them where they want to go in life
2: so I, I love what you're saying. And I'm wondering, do you talk to your students about this? Or do you advise parents on this issue? Or like, what are, what steps do you take? Absolutely. I,
0: I've built my career as an educator on being very transparent with my students, with my parents. Um, I really think that we can only grow as, in relationships with one another if we are authentic. Um, and we're really open with the dialogue. So you know, I've had students who have come to me and they rolled up their sleeves and I have seen just dozens of cuts on their arms. And I'm the first person that they have disclosed this to. And I know, I, and it, it's still to this day, I well up when I think about it because um, one, just the heartbreak I had for seeing these beautiful individuals suffering to that extent. Um, but two, knowing the fear that they had around, the world seeing them as a failure, knowing the fear that they had around their parents, seeing them as a failure and me getting to serve as a conduit to them, getting help to them, beginning that road of communication with their parents and guardians. Um, I, I've never taken that responsibility lightly at all. Um, but I think the fact that my students know, even to this day as a principal, I have kids who come to me and say, I just really need to talk like this is how I'm feeling or this is what I'm going through. I've never approached one of those conversations with judgment. It's always with, I'm here for you. We're going to get through this together. And I get in the trenches as I know so many educators and parents do, and we game plan
1: with them. First of all, that's just amazing to me that you have this openness about you and this rapport with your students. I mean, I I don't know how many other principals or former teachers have that, but that seems to me a true bless, a true gift that you have. So that's wonderful that they find that have found you and have that, that safe space and that person to talk to. Um, You know, what, what are some of the, I guess, observations that you have and maybe some of the themes that are coming through with where this is all stemming from and really from a practical standpoint, you know, you gave some very good tips already But where parents can, how parents can reach out, like the, even the type of questions to ask. And we can, we'll dive into your book because I know you address it in there too. But sometimes it's just, we don't know what to say as parents and we get, we're concerned and then we say the wrong thing because we don't know (laughs) how to say the right thing. And then we end up turning our kids away a little bit. Totally. You know, I,
0: my advice to parents around asking questions, I'll start from the back and, and work my way forward. My advice around asking questions is to work on framing questions where your child cannot give you a one-word response, right? If you say, how was your day? And they say, fine, they've checked the box, they've answered your question, they've engaged with you, and it's very easy, clean, neat, and they don't have to feel vulnerable. Instead, ask more specific questions. So, you know, instead of how was your day, talk to me about one awesome thing that happened today. And then they may go, I don't know. You can then frame it and say, well, I'll start then. And you model for them, the expectations that you have around the conversation and not expectations in terms of this is what you should do, but rather our our kids hate hypocrisy. They want to know that what we ask of them, we ourselves are doing. So if you model, Hey, I had a really tough day today. Like I had this encounter with my boss that just didn't go how I wanted it to go. Like, how was your day with teacher X, Y, or Z? Um, maybe hearken back to a situation that you knew was going on with a friend or something that they felt really funky about that had gone on the week before and just be like, How, how's that going? Like, have you noticed anything that's changed or gotten better or worse? Give them a way to be descriptive without them feeling that they're under a microscope. And, and if you approach those in just a really conversational colloquial way, whether it's in the car ride or you're making dinner or folding laundry Where they don't feel like they're sitting across the table from you, and they're under a lamp, and they're in the hot seat, it's going to be much more free form at that point. Um, I think that's.
2: Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh no! Please, no, no. Go ahead, Marnie. I was just going to say I think that's really awesome advice, and I'm wondering. You know, you mentioned that like some kids have come in to talk to you about like cutting or some of those kinds of tougher situations, and I'm wondering, do you think that Kids are wanting to have those really tough conversations with their parents, but they just don't know how to approach it or how to address it. And then as a parent, like, you know, it's one thing to ask them about their day, but, but how do you kind of dig in, in with your child in those tougher situations in a way that feels safe for them? If that makes sense. <laughs> no, it absolutely does.
0: You have to set, a ground of where an expectation, I tell my students, if you are honest with me, if you are honest, I- I'm never going to be angry with what you're telling me in truth, right? So you start with very basic things. And and maybe it's where, you know, they say something that they want to test the waters to see if it's going to shock you. You have to prepare yourselves as parents ahead of time with where's my benchmark of well, now, wait a minute. We have crossed the line and I need to take a serious tone or where you can be like, you know what, this is developmentally appropriate. They are pushing boundaries. I'm not going to necessarily justify what they're saying, but I'm not going to respond with reproach. Um, and so I think I think first and foremost, parents have to decide where's that line in the sand for them. Um, where are they willing to give a little bit in terms of letting their child Push boundaries a bit in dialogue and discussion in their own expressing their own opinions. Um, kids are scared that their thoughts and ideas are going to get them in trouble. Mm-hmm. And only can we really help our kids develop well thought through opinions, well developed ideas, um, decisions that are rooted in, in the practical and things that are going to be safe and healthy for them if we give them the space to be honest about how they're feeling. And then we respond with, that's really interesting. I've never thought of it that way. You know, when I approach something like this, I always think about it this way. You're giving them justification for how they're feeling. You're not telling them their feelings are wrong. And if they then feel like, huh, I didn't get in trouble. Like mom didn't yell at me. Dad didn't like tell me what to do or go to my room or take my phone away it's going to start to expand the trust and you're going to find that that transparency and vulnerability is going to come from there. Don't go into it the first day thinking they're going to spill their guts and they're going to tell you everything that's on their Instagram feed. But slow little nuggets along the way will yield these bigger opportunities for really in-depth conversations.
2: That makes a lot of sense.
1: I love. It. Yes. And I know, you know, you talk in the book a little bit about monitoring the social media and you know our role as parents and that we're parents first and then friends second right um which is hard especially you know when as parents we're busy and we're juggling work and other kids and responsibilities and we want our we, we want our kids to like us and we want our kids friends to like us right um so i'd love for you to just talk even a little bit more about that and what you've seen and you know suggestions that you absolutely. have
0: absolutely I, I always hearken back to Amy Poehler and Mean Girls, right? Where she's like, I'm not a regular mom. I'm the cool mom. And I mean, <laughs> we all want to be liked, whether we're a parent, a teacher, whatever it might be. Um, the unfortunate thing in trying to be your, your child's friend first is that you are going to lose the definition and the boundaries of structure and of accountability and of, of real guidance that, that your child craves. When they become adolescents and middle schoolers and high schoolers, you're going to see that they're, they they play off that they don't want boundaries. They don't want rules. Oh, my gosh, this is so unfair. So-and-so gets to do whatever they want to do. The reality is the second that the walls are broken down and, and they are free to go, they are clamoring back for structure. Our kids need that. Developmentally, they need that. So, um, you know, you have to be parent first you have to hold up those expectations that you have as a household that you have as a family. And you have to, like I said before, kind of knowing that threshold of where conversations can go and where you'll respond and where you want, what are the, what are the rules for your family that are just non-negotiable? You know, whether it's curfews, whether it's um, when the phone needs to be shut off, um, whether it's the kind of music they listen to or whatever it might be, you come up with those absolutes, But bring them into it in a conversation so that they're understanding, you know, what what does the contract really mean? You know, they're gonna have to sign a contract eventually as adults. Let's come up with a family contract. Have them have some input on it. Maybe you say that, you know, phones have to be off by nine o'clock, but in your mind you're willing to give them a 30 minute window to negotiate. They're gonna feel a win. They're gonna feel a sense of ownership in that. And I think that that's really important too in building that communication. Um, and from there, once you've established that rapport, it's very easy to be friendly because you're operating within boundaries that you both have agreed upon and you're not going to necessarily feel like the constant disciplinarian, but rather it's going to feel more like an amicable situation. I always would establish community rules in my classroom where we would talk about them. I'd say, here's what I'm thinking. I get their opinions. That's really interesting. You know what? Why don't we adapt it to this? Or you know what, guys? Item number three is a non-negotiable. This is how we're all going to operate because we're all going to be humans of compassion in this way, whatever it might be. Um, but but really giving them a voice and an option of opinion in that sense is really, really important. With regards to social media, um, I think there's a difference. Monitoring can sound encroaching and kids can definitely push back on that or rather adolescents. I just recommend following your 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 child. If you're on Instagram and they're on Instagram, follow each other. Um, don't comment on their post. Take those conversations offline. Because if you comment on their post in a negative way, or even in a way that you think is funny, but is mortifying to them, that's another way to shut down that communication. Take it offline. Oh my gosh, I thought what you posted today was really insightful. I was going to talk about this. Um, and if you see something that's like really jarring, again, don't call it out on in a public forum. Take it offline and have those discussions um, one-on-one.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that totally. And I, I, um, have had access to my girl, our, my kids' Instagrams, our kind of rule was through eighth grade. And then once they're out of eighth grade, they're managing, I wasn't managing the account, but I could go, I could have access to it after eighth grade. I don't have the password, but I can still follow them mm-hmm. and they will have hopefully shown me that they're responsible through middle school and then in high school and letting them take the reins. That's kind of how yeah. we've done it in our house and it's worked so far. That's a great evolution. And that just slowly removes the scaffolding to where they can
0: establish that autonomy for themselves. But right. know that there's always you in the background wanting to make sure that they are, they are protected and putting their, their best selves out there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um. So tip, changing gears a little bit, um, when I was reading through your book, I love the section that says, boredom is when true creativity abounds. Only in boredom do we create and imagine. And I wanted to talk about that a little further. I feel like, you know, pre and post pandemic, kids are so overscheduled. And it really doesn't allow a lot of time for that self-discovery time. and um, I found in my house. That was really a wonderful silver lining of the pandemic was that my girls just embraced creating all kinds of different things and passions. And, you know, now schedules are totally ramping up. It went from like zero to a hundred in my house pretty quickly. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. And um, I don't know, what do you tell people in that arena? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think that
0: something that's really interesting about the overscheduling, and I was going to bring this up earlier when we talked about what is driving insecurity of students and 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 the like. The world for them has become so competitive. I I can speak. I'll speak to the Bay Area in particular, but when students go to apply for private high schools, for example, or even public, and trying to get into the schools that they want, there are so many students who are applying for so few spots and everyone is bringing to the table that they are, they play piano and they sing and they dance and they do basketball and they're a straight A student, and they do community service and the list goes on. And, and it's this, it's this constant trying to one up one another. And I think we've hit a point where we actually have to release it and start from, start from square one and have our students focus on one or two things that They don't have to be great at everything. I talk about that in my book too. They cannot be a gold medal winner in everything in life. There are going to be areas that they don't thrive in and they can keep trying and keep growing. There's going to be things that they just don't like and let's sweep that off the table for them so that they can focus on the things that they really are passionate about. And so I think that, you know, in the beginning when parents have their kids dabble in music and sports and team events, I think it's really important. It builds friendships, it builds social skills, and it helps them get a taste for where do my true talents lie and what do I want to get involved in? But the older they get, it's important to give them that downtime, to really give them the space to breathe and to think and to reflect. And like you said, I mean, to just have time to draw or doodle or color. I know so many of my students got into art during the pandemic. They really just had some time to sit back and draw, whether it's anime or whatever they like to do. And It's almost as though I encourage parents sometimes schedule into your calendar nothing. Schedule (laughs) in to a day or a weekend where we're not running to a soccer game and we're running to this birthday party. Teach your kids that there's power in saying no. Teach them young that there's power in saying that I don't have to do everything and be everywhere. Um, and, and hone it in on let's pick one activity that you're going to do this quarter and you're going to really focus on it and do it well. And you're going to have time to sleep and eat a breakfast in the morning and
1: um, just enjoy being at home with us. I love that idea, the schedule in nothing. And that is one thing that I really missed from the pandemic. I mean, similar to what Marnie said, um, maybe I have to make sure my husband's going to listen to this episode. (laughs) Maybe Maybe he'll take your advice. I mean, it's, and it's hard because of that competitive nature. I mean, I think it's like that, like you mentioned in the Bay Area, but I know it's like that in many, many parts of the country. And we all need to get off the hamster wheel. It's like we all need to like make a pack with each other. Okay, you jump, I'll jump too. Because everyone's worried that as soon as they scale back and oh my gosh, their kid is only going to play soccer and not do three other things for the next six months. You know, then he's going to be behind. And like, no, I mean, and what are we trying to achieve at the end of the day for our kids anyway? What do we really want for them? You know, we want them to be happy and healthy and good citizens and all these things. But yeah, I... I don't know. It's it's overwhelming. I I think what you're suggesting is overwhelming as a
2: parent, I think, um, Mm -hmm. for sure. And, you know, if you are going to be that outlier and jump off the hamster wheel, as Stephanie said, you know, then it's like you get to the college admissions process and you have to really think about, okay, what, you know, where does my child, well, your child, the the kid applying has to think about where do I shine? And, Mm -hmm. um, when you're competing against all these other kids, you know, there's really nothing you can do about it. That it's unfortunately that is the way it is when you're applying to college. And it sounds like in San Francisco when you're applying to private school or, or public school, whatever. So it's it's kind of a a weird situation to be in, to navigate and to find that right balance. I would tell my students that even if you do
0: everything. Even if you do everything, there's always going to be somebody else who does one thing more. So, if if that's if that's the ideal that we're chasing, then I'm out. Like I'm out mm-hmm. because then the messaging where that I tell my students, I say it in my graduation speech every year that you are more than good enough. Then that message is is never going to resonate if if there's always somebody who does something more or better than them. They have got to find where I am content and happy and at peace because. I am just, I'm a good human, and I'm a good friend, and I'm a good sibling to my brothers and sisters, and that alone helped me feel fulfilled. I used to read them an article. It came out a number of years ago now, but there was a student applying to college, and she was accepted to every Ivy, along with Stanford and Berkeley and several others, and her essay was not written on all the things that she had done in the last 18 years of her life. It was about Costco. And how every weekend, she would go to Costco and shop with her father. And that was the narrative. And I would talk to them about, look at how basic this is. And yet, how incredibly powerful the message is that there is so much strength and there is so much beauty in the simple and in, in the simplistic. And so, um, you know, I, I think that our students have to understand they can be good at one thing and one thing only. And that's
1: enough. I love that advice. I love that advice. And I think with things changing even a little bit with the college application process because of COVID, that maybe we'll start to see that shift like you're, like you're suggesting. Yeah. Well, and I was I just going to so.
2: say one more thing to the point you just made. First of all, I love when you said you're more than good enough. You know, I'm a good human and they don't even need to be really good at one thing, right? If they're happy and they're a good person and life is good, like that's enough, right? Yep. Yeah like you don't exactly. need to be an expert in anything to be successful or happy. Yeah. Absolutely. So, but unfortunately that's not the message kids are getting right now today.
0: It's not, but I think if we it's got to, it'll be a ripple effect, right? It mm-hmm. you have to be bold enough to start it even if we're the only ones in our neighborhood, our school, our community saying it, it will spread because contentment is something that we're all seeking and don't all parents want their children to be content? And if that means that, that the normal routine goes, goes on hiatus for a little while, people are going to stop and take notice.
1: Absolutely. Yes, I agree. And this, you know, kind of pivoting a little bit, but this is in line with this question I wanted to ask you. You know, talking about how parents are interfering a bit and challenging teachers in a way that can be detrimental to the student and their relationship, um, how would you suggest you know improving upon this? And I think it comes from the place like you just said, Meredith, we all want our kids to be content, right? And so it's good intention, but maybe gone a little bit. (laughs) bit No, absolutely. I
0: when when people ask me what's the hardest part of your job, generally before I even have a chance to answer, they will say, I bet it's the parents, right? And like nine (laughs) out of ten times that's mostly it. And In a way, yes, because, you know, parents want what is absolutely best for their kids. It doesn't matter where they go to school. It doesn't matter what age they are. Parents want the absolute best. And I think the messaging that oftentimes gets lost is that, yes, teachers teachers are there and they're dedicated and they they're coming in early and they're staying late, but that they want that exact same thing, too. That's why we got into this profession, to help grow and enable just incredible human beings. And so I think that if we can all, let's let's challenge each other for the fall, that we're gonna walk into the first day of school, parents and teachers alike, with this understanding that we are coming at this from the same place. How are we going to accomplish goals around generating compassion and empathy and intellect and resilience in your children, our students? Um, approaching conversations around grades from the sense of that teachers don't have to feel like they're on the defense just because a student didn't do well on a test and they assigned a C minus and they are going to be on the chopping block by the parent of that student. And on the flip side that a parent understands that, let's talk about why my child fell down on this assignment or this task. Why did they get in trouble for making a snarky comment or something that went on during recess time? Let's have a conversation around the facts and the details And let's set a goal before we even begin that dialogue with what's going to be the game plan that we walk away from here with, that we can all buy into, especially the child themselves. I think once a child hits around third, fourth grade, most conversations they should be involved in. They should be able to have a voice. They should be able, excuse me, to be part of that narrative. And they should also walk out of that that meeting with their own personal stake in what's to come
1: for them from that point moving forward. Yeah, that, that's great advice. And I think, you know, there are parents that also just don't want to let their kids fail. Right. Right. And again, it's coming from a good place. But I know you talk about this in the book too. Um, and you kind of alluded to this already with, you know, we all can't be great at everything. But just the lessons that kids learn when they do fail, right? When they do get the C minus mm-hmm. that you mentioned.
0: Yeah, I mean, they, they're they never going to know what it's like to have to pull themselves up because whether it's when they're eight years old or they're 18 or they're 28, there's going to be a time where they're going to fall down. And if, if they don't understand how to pull themselves back up, how to be resilient enough to be self-reflective, to look at, well, what went wrong? Why did this happen? Why am I in this situation? What could I have done differently? And what am I not going to do next time? We're we're going to have adults who who lack the ability to hold themselves accountable to their own ideals, but also to community ideals. And so it's really important that when our kids fall down, that you're there to support them, you're there to cheer them on, and you're there to strategize with them so they have the tools to be able to self-solve and self-soothe moving forward when you may not be there at all times.
2: Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I actually... I almost don't like the word fail because it has like this negative connotation to it. But I think failure is so important. (laughs) Like you said, it develops so much resilience and it really does teach you how to, how to overcome something. And I, I have seen like kids that have everything come their way and they don't experience that do struggle more as adults. Absolutely. And you can, if you don't like the word failure, you
0: can talk to your children about, you know, it's an opportunity for growth. You
2: mm-hmm. know, this is
0: a time where if, if you're succeeding, you've already grown. You've hit, you've hit the top of the mountain. But this, where you're at the base or you're in the valley, this is your chance to grow. And let's talk about how we're going to get to there. Mm-hmm. We, as a collective village, but with them really feeling like they're empowered to to take those first steps.
1: I like that terminology a lot because we've had this conversation in my household and, you know, we've, my husband has a thing, like he, he doesn't like the word failure. Right. But I think in order, I don't look at it as failure. Like you're taking a risk, you're stepping outside of your comfort zone. You're doing something, you're pushing your, your limits a bit. And that to me is what's important. Um, And the outcome and how well you succeeded or if you failed or not, you know, that's not, that's not to me what's important. Right. Um. But I think it's just a mindset shift for kids. I think they're they're safe and comfortable and they don't want to necessarily take a risk if they think they're gonna fail. So coming up with a new word, I think is really important. Um, so Meredith, I know we've talked a little bit, we mentioned the book and we keep, you know, talking about the different parts of it that Marnie and I have really enjoyed reading, The Overly Honest Teacher. Um obviously we we want people to buy the book, but are there any other parts of the book, or you know so many tips and tri- tips and strategies that you put in here? and we love leaving our listeners with with some nuggets that they can implement, you know, as parents?
0: you know before we before we started talking, it's, we had talked a little bit about the importance of breakfast. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 yes. is i I speak on that all the time. At our school, we offer breakfast for students in the morning. We have some cereal and yogurt and things ready for them when they come to school in case they haven't had the chance to eat. But I think that oftentimes in, in the pursuit of trying to reduce schedules, right. And to make life a little bit more simplistic, we have to find time to carve out nourishment for students' bodies in the morning before they leave the house. It does not have to be anything that is over the top or arduous to fix. Um, it's a great way to empower them and to instill in them some autonomy to, Maybe they fix something the night before that's ready to go in the morning, or maybe there's a game plan that you have set. Um, you have a shelf in the kitchen where there's cereal and there's bananas and there's a jar of peanut butter. Um, but giving them that ability to be independent is crucial. And in the same time, they're going to come to school with their bellies nourished, and that's going to fuel their brains. And I I say in my book, but it is so true that as teachers, we can tell from a mile away a student who is bounding in the doors that has had something to eat in the morning and they're ready to face the day, and a student who is sluggish and lethargic and they are not going to be able to pull themselves out of it until lunchtime because they're coming in with an empty stomach. And it's just impossible to think that they're going to be able to be successful scholars if if they're not fueling themselves up to to be successful for the
2: day. Uh, Absolutely. And I love that your school is offering breakfast because I'm not sure that I, I'm i not in the school world. So I don't know if all schools do that. But I think that's wonderful.
0: It harkens back to the 1960s, have- where there was this movement to, you know, have free breakfast available in schools so that students really could get off on the right foot. And, um, you know, it still holds true to today.
2: It's great.
1: Yes. And in your book, you have a nice little list. And it was it's there's a lot of the things that we eat in my house. And so I just think that it's a great list. And like you said, it's easy and simple. And I like the idea just to plan and have an idea what you're going to do, um, even the mm-hmm. night before and just know and have it all stocked. So
2: so Meredith, where can, how can people connect with you? Where can they buy your book? Absolutely. My book's available on Amazon, on Barnes and
0: Noble, bookshop.org. You can also find it on my website where I maintain a blog and um, speaking opportunities at com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm all over. Find me. I I love talking with people. This is my favorite thing to talk about.
2: The better than my kids. We'll link all that up in the show notes. And you've been so kind to offer a book as a giveaway and look for that on Instagram um, soon. Awesome. Yeah. So Meredith,
1: one last question that we love to ask all of our guests is what does the art of living well mean to you? The art of living well means to me that
0: I that we find contentment in the little things in life that we approach every day with the anticipation of gratitude for things that we can learn, uh, relationships that we can build um ways that we can nourish and cultivate our own sense of self, whether it's through exercise or cooking or visiting with a friend or just having time to sit and be and think and reflect. Um I talk to my students about this all the time, but let's find joy. And if you can find joy in the little things, if you can find one thing every day that gave you joy that you can be grateful for, then then that is a life
2: well lived. I love that. I love that. It's beautiful. And Stephanie and I talk a lot about finding joy and especially finding joy, like you said, in the little things. And I think that takes life to just such a wonderful level. It does.
1: And I love that you're teaching that and Mm -hmm. instilling that in your students at such a young age, because I honestly think it's only been the last like handful of years that I've really been able to. find that joy and have that peace. And it's always in the little things, you know, or, or experiences. It's not, you know, when I was younger, it would have been, you know, just some material object. Right. But that shift and how you're doing that with your students is wonderful. I'm
0: hopeful that coming out of the pandemic, that's going to resonate more than ever, you know, because so many of those things that we took for granted, um, we're going to get to experience again and, and let's have a renewed appreciation for that. Absolutely.
2: Well, thank you so much, Meredith, for being on our show today. Thank you. Um, it's been wonderful having yeah. you. And I think our listeners yes. are going to resonate with a lot of what you're saying. Thank you so much for having me. I've, yeah. I really love this conversation so much. And have a wonderful yeah. rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening to the Art of Living Well podcast.